0: Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonnet Private Research Team as we pack our bags and follow the money. we've plenty to get to in today's episode, dear listener, from crypto bans to the Fed's hypothetical third mandate, hint, it has to do with saving the world, from supply chain disruptions to meatflation and what's really behind them both, and the great generational wealth transfer from asset poor millennials to asset rich boomers. All that and plenty more in my conversation with Dan Denning up next.
1: No, that's too much caffeine. Go for a sugar-free oh, Gatorade. Later. In, in sort of, but I'm starting to build my winter schedule around um, exercising in the afternoon, which is either about 45 minutes of different free weights, followed by 30 to 45 minutes of cycling or spin class, or just one or the other. So you kind of have to build your whole schedule. It's really boring, actually. I found that this happened when I lived in Australia that if you build your life around fitness, even if you feel good and you, and you get results, like you're fitter, thinner, healthier life is a lot more boring that way. <laughs> just as it will be uh, just as life would be with, with no taper. If the federal reserve removes all of its stimulus <laughs> it's from the financial market. Segue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I, I'm here all gonna, day. Look, I was going to try the veal. I was going to say, you know, the, um, um, the the antidote for for boredom, of course, in the in the spin class is listening to an engaging podcast. Um, I don't know where anyone would find such a such um, auditory enlightenment, but I'm sure if they searched hard enough, they'd come across something.
1: But well, can I can I interject really quick? Because it's it, by way of opening the conversation, which I'm sure you had a better way to do it, but it reminded me of of something I sent around privately, which we all reacted to. uh, And it it has to do with the spin class in the podcast, because I signed up, I don't have a Peloton bike. I have a a spin bike, which I bought last year early in the pandemic. And then I have a tablet from Amazon. It's an Amazon fire tablet. And then I signed up for the Peloton app. So I have three different platforms, but you can, (laughs) you can, you can run Peloton classes on the, on a tablet, right? So you you pick the class that you want, which is, is it an endurance class? Is it high intensity training? Is it just relaxing? You can do it by music genre. I want 70s rock. I want 80s pop. I want 90s hip hop. You can do it by instructor or you can do it by um, the, the amount of time that you have. So you could do a 15 minute class, a 30 minute class, 45 minute hour and 15. So lots of options, kind of a cool thing. It's a subscription service. So I do that. When I, um, when I spin, because it helps kind of structure the time so that I'm not just thinking about something else. So I wouldn't listen to a, a Hardcore History podcast or Joe Rogan. I, I just wouldn't listen to that when I was exercising because I think the point of exercising is to get out of your mind and just inhabit your body for a while and and change, change the pace of your day. So, um, but the point I was going to make is that this, we read this long thread from, uh, from a, a person who's on Twitter who we can name if we want, but he was making the argument that the, the reason the j- valuations in today's stock market are justified is that there's been a generational shift uh, in what matters to investors. And it, it was partly driven by the pandemic and the young people who were either broke because they'd been fired or broke because they have too much student debt or broke because they couldn't work during the pandemic, had instead gotten money from the government, opened up trading accounts on apps that allow leverage and allow you to speculate on, on different types of assets, including digital assets that didn't exist years ago. And that these, this, was the, this explains why the market is where it's at, that it's, it's just a new way of thinking about uh, what things are worth rather than discounted cash flows. And it's a new level of understanding and risk taking taken by a different generation. And I thought, well, OK, that's interesting because, yeah, these people interact with technology differently. They call themselves digital natives. But then I thought about myself on this Peloton class where that's the extent of the social interaction I have on some dates. If I don't go out to lunch or go check the mail or go to the grocery store, the only people I interact with are people I interact with on the screen. Uh, It might be my phone, it might be my computer, it might be a Zoom call, or it might be a tablet, and it might not even be live. Like these Peloton classes are not even live. It's just some guy in London who's in a studio doing 80s rock, which is a good ride. (laughs) I recommend that. But that was the argument in this Twitter thread is that as people's lives migrate online, Mm -hmm. then companies and services and technologies that enable that or facilitate that or are built on that, like you know, Facebook becoming Meta—that um, that that's that justifies the valuations. And I thought that's really interesting, but probably not true.
0: Mm. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting how we can build a narrative uh, around practically anything we want to we want to justify. Just because <laughs> the world is so complex and there's so much of it that's unknown to us, that if we have just a few data points that we can string together we can start to come up with a theory that can can uh, end up looking pretty plausible but just on that exact um train of thought right there um i spoke a few episodes ago with um with a mutual colleague of ours and, and i guess good friend of yours uh, owen tracy and he mentioned exactly this idea of um subscriptionizing if that's a word uh, subscriptionizing people's lives and so there's been now a whole generation of people that have been reduced to their cash flow, and he made I think a very interesting observation, uh, and it's along the lines of what of what you were saying, slightly framed slightly differently I think, and that's that there's a whole generations of uh, generation of people that viewed asset wealth as the real kind of foundation of you know capital formation and you know a real kind of bedrock of of legitimate wealth, something that certainly could preserve through cyclical downturns, however they might come about. Um, and this new idea of, uh, very, very kind of in the moment, you know, just signing up for whether it's a gym membership or, uh, you know, people aren't buying cars like they used to, they're leasing them. People are renting, people are, You know, and there's a whole, you know, kind of economy that's built up around this, a gig economy um, that facilitates this kind of almost anchorless life. So uh, I guess when it comes to value to valuing the companies that operate in that space, we have to have a look at whether or not there really is a generational shift or as he was positing that this is just a big transfer of wealth from those without any assets. Um, who have been reduced to, to their cash flows and their paycheck to paycheck, through to people that actually own the companies or own shares in the companies that provide that kind of subscriptionized lifestyle.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's a it's a really multi layered, uh, multifaceted question, and and it involves you know it involves a practical thing like interest rates, and a philosophical thing like the value of time. So you know, and those are not unrelated, which is you right. know it's hard to connect with <laughs> us. but but obviously, you know, when the Federal Reserve began lowering interest rates and practicing quantitative easing in two thousand and eight, uh, it created an incredible bubble in asset prices because that's uh, people could borrow money and invest in asset prices. And by lowering the you know lowering the risk-free rate of return on government bonds, changed the value of growth assets. You know, that's the key price in terms of how to price cash flows. So the the logical rational response was to buy growth assets. And the things that were growing the fast weren't necessarily the most profitable, but, you know, these were companies experiencing the network effect like Instagram, which was bought Mm -hmm. by Facebook and Amazon and now we've got NVIDIA and Netflix, all these companies that are part of that. So that only benefited, though, as we've seen in the macroeconomic data, that only really benefited people who already owned assets. So the top 10% of Americans by net worth got massively wealthy, but the bottom 50% who are not asset owners, but are wage earners, didn't get wealthy from that. So then, then that created another problem for that bottom 50%, because What they do have is a lot of debt, so they don't have assets, but they owe money, whether it's revolving credit card debt, or student loan debt, or mortgage debt. And so when you're in that position, and your income in real terms, or your wages in real terms are relatively flat, uh, and you can't get into the asset price boom, then this whole new opportunity comes, comes up and says, well, instead of investing for the long haul, or investing for a rainy day. Or earning interest and in scrapping on my savings to try and build a nest egg. Now I have the possibility of getting incredibly rich mm-hmm. faster than I ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't I do that instead? You know, why would I try to compound my wealth at four to six percent a year for 30 years when I don't even have any discretionary wealth? So the, you know, again, the rational choice for those persons in an, in a low interest rate world where they can't get on the asset. Price appreciation train is to do what we've seen them do, which is to speculate on crypto coins or use meme stocks. And you know, we would probably, we should probably make a, a, a distinction between sort of the gen, genuine development in digital assets and what those are versus what I think a lot of what you're seeing is is just massive hell for leather speculation on people who are trying to get rich because. They don't really have time to get rich through asset price appreciation. So it was all of that's in context of what the Fed has decided to do today, which is really nothing except uh, (laughs) announce that it would taper its asset purchases from 120 billion a month uh, to buy 15 billion dollars a month for the next eight months. So it's going to reduce its mortgage-backed security purchases uh, by five billion bucks and its treasury purchases by 10 billion bucks. So by June, you know it won't be. Purchasing any more assets, and at that point it might begin discussing whether to raise interest rates. But you know, it's it's really, and I'm rambling a little bit. But I think this people don't appreciate uh, because it's hard to understand the relationship between interest rates and QE and and people's actual behavior with money. And when the Dow goes over thirty six thousand for the first time ever, and when Tesla goes up like 130 billion dollars a day. These things are all related and to me they all mm-hmm. say that we're you know we're seeing something we've never we haven't seen anything like this since 2000 and it's an it's an awful lot like that right now.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of um the the kind of disconnect between what people see as, you know, monetary policy and the behavior that they see happening around them and it there seems to be this this um, irrational knock-on effect, but if you do as you do and and uh, and as Bill does daily, if you connect the dots and, and follow it back, there's, there really is a causal relationship that might not be necessarily immediately intuitive, but that's part of the work that uh, that you guys are doing. But I often think about that with regards to, let's say you alluded to, to crypto assets, then, I mean, it, if we had have had a, a central bank that was reliable, that was a good custodian of its currency, that didn't abuse its uh, its exorbitant privilege, uh, let's say, then we wouldn't have had such fertile ground for a disruptive technology like that to grow up. And on the same, the same side of that coin, uh, let's say, if we didn't have interest rates that were artificially pinned to the floor for so long, then we wouldn't have what is known sometimes in Austrian circles as the malinvestment and this kind of these big speculative bubbles that just kind of you know blow up through different um parts of the economy from time to time but it it does make sense and this is where it gets back to back to uh federal reserve policy at the moment if you i just read a headline that says if you're not making if you don't get a five percent raise next year you're officially losing money you're and and that's just at the that's just at the at the official inflation rate, which is a, a thirty-year high of whatever it is, five point four or five point eight percent, or something like that. So, in that sense, it does. If you're watching your money just kind of you know fritter away in value, it's not difficult to see why people who who have been sort of boxed into a corner like that might start to look to the person next to them who has the promise of 8%, 20000 percent for. You know they can make in the, the next couple of days, and think, "What choice do I have at this stage?" Uh, and so it's really the the policies that are driving that kind of behavior, which they then point at as as irrational.
1: Yeah, it's it's a kind of forced financialization because you can, you can you know we say force like no one's compelling people to do these things with their money and to put their money at risk. But, the, but if you don't do something, then the reality is, as you pointed out, that the value of your labor expressed through your wages will decline relative to the cost of living and, and other things. So you try to get ahead of that by finding something that's going up at a faster rate. And what that means is you, you put money in. It used to mean you would put money into a productive enterprise, <laughs> a business <laughs> that, that could generate earnings. And now it doesn't mean that at all. I mean, partly... I think I said privately, too. I, I admire in some ways what's happened because it's it's almost like there was a great story a few uh, probably 10, 15 years ago about a, a boy scout in Michigan who built an atomic bomb. He had uh, he did it on his own before the really kind of before the internet he he uh, he and how he got the the nuclear material for it was a long story. but he used open source information. He actually wrote, I think, to the Department of energy. And they were like, "Wow, this kid is really enterprising. Let's help him." And they gave him some material they probably shouldn't have. <laughs> he didn't know what—I mean, they didn't know what he was doing—but turned out he built uh, a, something like a nuclear reactor. It was either a bomb or a reactor, uh, and of course, it wasn't a major threat. But it, he had gotten most of the important parts right. And I—I I thought of that when I was looking at what what people have done with GameStop and AMC and with some of these. Crazy, uh, crazy cryptos. You know, there's 9000 of them. It's kind of like a guerrilla army that's decentralized that has figured out how to build its own printing press. So they've been locked out of the ability to benefit from asset price appreciation. So that's for Federal Reserve board members, governors, members of Congress, investment bankers and, you know, the, the 1%. The stock market is for them getting rich. And then all these other people figured out, well, if it's if it's just a question of goosing asset prices, let's find an unregulated market where we, we can create assets and then bring all of our liquidity to that market in a decentralized, but coordinated fashion, drive them up, make our money, and then move on. It's like the mm-hmm. Mongol horde you know, moving across the steppe so that uh, they can just get to, to Eastern Europe. So, uh, in that part, uh, that part I'm interested in. But what worries me is that, especially this week, the um, you know the government has announced its position paper on on stable coins and essentially saying that you have to be a bank or we're going to regulate you like a bank, which means you have to have capital requirements, reporting requirements, uh, and insurance requirements. You have to you know it's the equivalent of federal deposit insurance. So they're starting to push back on this sort of guerrilla printing press. And that worries me is that you're going to get a lot of people who had nothing to to lose by taking these risks, lose whatever it is that, that they've risked. That would be a big, big tragedy. But I, I think that seems like what what the authorities are doing in reaction to financial markets that they don't control right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it would be. It would be a, a, a historical aberration, I think, if the monetary hegemony that is being challenged, or that had declared to be challenged, didn't didn't kind of fight back at some point. I mean, you know, we have we've had bans and um, onerous regulations in various jurisdictions around the world. Um, you know, some different states uh, and states within states have been have declared themselves more crypto friendly or crypto asset friendly. Um, so there seems to, you know, there's been a kind of competition between states, either to stamp it out on the one end, obviously, uh, news out of China in the last couple of months has not been favourable to to cryptos. And then, of course, with Biden's uh, nomination for comptroller of the currency in the US being, uh, you know, bringing kind of fairly heavy handed record toward uh, cryptos, we do see, you know, a kind of emergence of protecting fiefdoms. Um, so I think it would be, it would be strange if, um, <clears throat> if they didn't rise to the threat. So it, it remains to be seen how the market will work around that and how they will, how they'll manage to, to scramble and leverage any kind of asymmetrical advantage that they think they might, uh, they might have through their decentralized network there, but just for, for people who are listening, who maybe aren't participating in the you know latest crypto mania or, um, you know, crypto asset um, bubble, but who are watching these uh, headline inflation numbers and uh, sort of calibrating it with their own real world experience, either at the pump or at the at the grocery store or in their heating bills uh, or at the post office, uh, as I wrote about just last week. What do you make of this um, so-called um, temporary inflation now that temporary means deep into 2022 um is <laughs> as, as ms Yellen has, has now conceded uh, are we looking at it you know getting a lot worse before it gets any better do the fed have beyond what you just mentioned before any meaningful tools to put the the genie in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the in, in the tube Or we'll pick your metaphor there or are we in for a you know kind of spiral?
1: Uh, that's that's really the important question right now for uh for everyone i mean for you know there was a political aspect to it with the um election results in virginia and uh and in new jersey which uh, went well one of them went against the democrats and the other kind of up in the air right now but those those were both states that weren't heavily for joe biden and depending on which analysis you subscribe to you know the, the issues driving The change in suburban voting patterns were pocketbook issues They they may have been cultural issues related to critical race theory in schools and, you know, and and other social issues. But I, I tend to think that people still pretty much vote with their pocketbook. So it was more about groceries and gas than it was about gender. Um, we'll we'll see because that's a that's a big thing going into next year. But what people would expect is that if inflation was transitory, or if as Powell said, the forces were transitory, <laughs> then um, then the Fed could be very methodical about raising interest rates, which it said it wouldn't do until the taper was done. It said those are those are separate discussions. So the taper and the interest rate rate. Uh, policy are supposedly separate, but you know, if you continue to have four, four and a half percent, five percent consumer price inflation, then uh, the Fed would have to raise interest rates faster, and that's what the bond market is already saying. And you know, mm-hmm. that would be bad for stocks. And and uh, but but there are other issues there, like you said that the Fed is claiming, and other people are claiming that what's driving inflation is. Uh, certain things in certain industries, which are labor related. So people not returning to work because they had uh, unemployment benefits or people not returning to work because vaccines were mandated in industries like trucking or at the ports or in shipping. Uh, So we don't, you know, there's not a lot of clarity on whether the so-called supply chain issues are what's causing inflation. What's causing the the kink in the supply chain? Uh, Is it, poor state policy in California about truck chassis? is it the hours of operation in Long Beach? is it could it become mandatory vaccinations for stevedores and port workers? you know it's not quite clear um, that these are all pandemic related factors, which is what the authorities are saying. I think the simplest answer historically is just a giant explosion in money supply which is changing the psychology of consumer expectations. And people say, well, yeah, that's true. M2 grew a lot, or the Fed balance sheet expanded, the deficit's larger, but the velocity of money's actually slowed down. People people still aren't spending money yet. So to me, the dis- discussion about what's driving inflation is, is always, and usually everywhere, a monetary phenomenon. And that happens between the ears of people. They have to decide, am I better off saving this money, holding on to cash, or had I start spending it on things that are not going to lose value or or buy them now because they might be ten or fifteen percent more expensive in several months. And uh, you know we're at the very beginning of that process right now. and And if you look at some of the historic macro indicators, which Bill and I look at in the newsletter, and I'm talking about uh, the deficit to GDP numbers being around over hundred percent two years in a row in the United States um or the debt to gdp numbers uh and their historic growth when you get into the range we get we're in now then it's not an exponential curve but it's the beginning of a serious monetary crisis and no one's really still having that discussion they're saying well that's not what's going on here but to me that is what's going on here and so what you do with your money has to be in that context and our strategy is to um to avoid getting caught at the top of an asset bubble. It, you know, l- Losing money is a bigger consequence than missing out on whatever upside remains. Uh, and then figuring out what to do your, with your, your cash, because we have currently in our model a 40% allocation to cash, uh, no allocation to bonds, 25% to stocks, and then a very large allocation to physical gold and real assets. But we would rather sit out the end of the bubble than try to catch the tiger by the tail. We still have to figure out what to do with all that cash because if, mm-hmm. if inflation is a risk, then having a big cash position is a risk too. So that's that's the big discussion going into the end of the year.
0: Yeah, it's uh, going back to the um, your discussion about uh, Mr. Powell and uh, tapering and interest rates being separate conversations. It just strikes me as as uh, so blatantly parental. You know, we'll have a talk about your broccoli, and then we'll we'll start talking about dessert. You know, it's it's very it's very like as if the as if the two things aren't aren't, uh, aren't related. But I I had only just gotten back down here to Argentina when this whole uh, supply chain issue started popping up in in the news. And as Bill mentioned in today's uh, in today's diary you know it's as if we went a couple of thousand years with you know little to no disruption uh with you know global supply chains and now all of a sudden it's this you know if you're paying 6.99 for a gallon of milk it's because of supply chains if you can't get your you know whatever gidget or widget or whatever it is on amazon that's blamed uh, on supply chains when i remember first seeing those headlines kind of creep across my screen when i first got down to argentina and of course Everybody down here in Argentina knows what empty shelves mean, and they know why there are empty shelves. And it's, it's exactly as you said, It's largely because between people's ears, they expect there to be none of that thing tomorrow because everybody's going to be racing to get hold of it and get rid of their money now. So this leads to runs on everything from, you know, depending on the circumstances, toilet paper to meat to whatever goods and essentials. And invariably, the the medicine or the response to that from the Argentine government has exacerbated the problem. Uh, And that typically is things like price controls or tariffs or uh, trade restrictions, uh, you know, clamping down on these kinds of things, which of course exacerbates the market um, distortions that manifest themselves in, in, uh, in empty shelves in the first place. So I feel like I'm almost speaking from the future. And by the future, I mean 50% inflation. It's just a motorcycle outside, but the future being 50% inflation where everybody seems to understand exactly why uh, shelves are clean. Um, but that doesn't seem to be a, a, a conversation that is happening elsewhere because I think we have this big bogeyman of the pandemic and it's there's so many unknowns in there that we can still point to things we can still point to that as kind of the, the cause of all evils and all uncertainties in our life.
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly become the de facto boogeyman for uh, politicians who want to explain why the cost of living is going up for voters is that, well, it was the pandemic pandemic. The pandemic caused a disruption in supply chains. It didn't have anything to do with our policy. <laughs> so, um, you know, as we come out of that, like I saw an interesting um, chart earlier today that said I think there were 8 million people that were still on some sort of uh, government benefit going into uh, October, early November, who will come off those. And so they'll either have to reenter the workforce, and there are plenty of jobs right now. So, you know, the the int- i guess the short short version would be keep an eye on wages keep an mm. eye on wages because there's plenty of people out there in who could go back to work right now if they wanted to and there's plenty of people at least here in laramie you know uh, as an anecdote there's several restaurants which are closed one or two days a week because they just don't have enough employees to hire them and then there's a, a dairy queen uh, around the corner which i do not eat at by the way but i noticed when I was walking by there the other day, the lobby. The, the, <laughs> no, I was just trying to figure out what was the sign. I went and read the, you know, you got to go read the signs these days. People just walk by them like they don't have information, but sometimes the signs have information. And the sign said the lobby's closed because we can't find anybody to work in the lobby. So there's always a long line of cars going through the drive-through because it's the only way you can get food. So it, it's, um, you know, the retail food industry has. Become a lot less labor dependent and become more automated. So the packaging of the food or the delivery of the food is done by a fewer and fewer people. So they could easily hire all those people back if if people came and and uh, and applied for the jobs. So the question is, uh, you know, will wages go up when people, if and when people re-enter the workforce in the next three or four months? And if that happens, then then you'll see the velocity of money increase. And then you'll see even higher inflation figures. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if we'll see stagflation, which is what everyone's worried about—that that a crash on Wall Street because of higher rates would slow the economy. I get the feeling that that's not the Fed's concern. And let's not forget, Jerome Powell's term ends in February of 2022. So, the uh, the political aspect of his appointment is is front and center now in D.C. And there are plenty of people on the left who would like a Governor of the central bank, who is more inclined to do something like modern monetary theory or QE for the people, mm-hmm. than 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 support financial markets. So you know the Fed's political independence is uh, is as threatened as it's ever been, and that's another interesting issue to watch in the coming months. Because if if the Fed is run by people whose job is, it is to support labor rather than financial prices, then you'll see um, you'll see a much more activist Fed. And its activism will favor wage earners and not asset owners
0: and so what about the the third uh mandate of the fed and this this is the the hypothetical mandate i mean we have the twin labor at, labor and inflation uh yeah. and and there's been some um there's been some talk about uh, a third component to what the fed's responsibility ought to be and this is with regards to some kind of Equitable distribution of wealth, or climate management, social justice—that kind of sphere. I mean, it, it it does seem you you alluded to the the um, the elections in New Jersey and and Virginia having some kind of uh, potentially some kind of cultural component to them, um, some kind of social justice component to them. I, I know critical race theory was. Potentially at the forefront um, of voters in Virginia, and their rebuking of, uh, of Governor McAuliffe. Do you think, uh, as we get closer to um, Mr. Powell's seat becoming vacant, that hypothetical kind of third mandate, uh, let's, if, if we want to call it that, of of the Fed might occupy a, a larger sphere, along with with um, with the Employment and and inflation, which is supposedly only supposed to be focused on thus far. Yeah, I think that's a great
1: question, and and I think it's even more uh, relevant now after the stupid climate talks in Glasgow. And I say <laughs> I say stupid because if there were a climate catastrophe, you wouldn't have 400 private jets and motorcades where cars are waiting on idle as the world burns. You know, there's a level of hypocrisy. The the level of hypocrisy in that was off the charts. But one of the things that came out of that at the end was another incredible hypocrite who's a former Goldman Sachs guy who, when he was governor of Bank of England for seven years, didn't do a single thing, didn't raise interest rates one time. (laughs) Uh, Mark Carney, the former governor of Bank of England, he's a Canadian. He was also the governor of the Bank of Canada, but he's positioned himself along with Michael Bloomberg as the head of a global initiative to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. What they've done, though, is they identified financial partners, including central banks, but also pension funds and asset managers whose whose orientation will change from from, uh, wisely investing in preserving the value of private savings to uh, directing those savings and allocating them toward the decarbonization of the global economy. So, they identified partners who have about $130 trillion in private assets under management and said, we're now going to cease funding industries that harm the climate. So, first and foremost, fossil fuel industries. But then we're going to go with the sustainability, uh, environment, and governance, the ESG mantra. And we're going to start allocating capital and financial markets based on whether or not you're helping to save the planet. What they haven't done yet is they haven't enlisted the help of central banks, but that's a critical part of this plan because you can only steal so many private savings or redirect them toward other investment goals. You can do that. And that's incredibly it's not gonna work. It's 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 the it's a modern version of the Soviet Gosp plan where it's it's a centrally allocated state sponsored investment program. But what you really need to do is you need to print tons of fake money. So that you can invest it in the stuff that you think is going to save the planet. So this is this is QE for the climate. Uh, it's an MMT for the climate. And the central bank has to be on board for that because in the same way that they've monetized government debt to enable the government to, to expand its pandemic relief programs, say you launched uh, green bonds to fund $30 trillion and close down 700 coal power plants and 500 coal mines. How are you going to bail out the communities that get destroyed by that? Well, you're going you're to borrow $10 trillion from financial markets. And if financial markets won't buy that debt, then the central bank can buy half of that debt. So uh, the mandate for central banks, rather than just being about employment and inflation and preserving the value of the currency, could expand. To be to save the planet, reduce the, uh, make sure that the Earth's temperature doesn't grow by two point five degrees Celsius, and uh, and in order for that to happen, that the politicians in Congress in Washington have to control the central bank. So I think that's one of the one of the really interesting questions right now. Historically, we'll look back on it and says who gets to control what the mandate of the central bank is. And at the individual level, it's really who gets to control your money. Is it your money and your savings? Or because you're spending dollars, is it the government's money? And because somebody else is managing it, they get to decide how your savings are invested. And my view is uh, it's your money. It's your body. So people can't tell you what what to put into it, and it's your savings. So if you don't want them to be captive to other people's decisions, you have to figure out where to put your money so that you have the maximum benefit from it and the maximum control from it. The other, by the way, the other thing which Doug Casey mentioned recently, our, our mutual friend, is that sometimes you can put the put the rational side or or the um, philosophical side of this discussion to the side and just say, well, just go with it. You know, just go with it. If the central banks are going to pump trillions of dollars into renewable technology, then just buy an ESG friendly renewable farm. Yeah. So don't have principles. It's better to be rich than right, is what someone told me. And I said, well, maybe for some people. But if, if all you're trying to do is be rich, then eventually you're going to get wrecked. And I think we're closer to getting wrecked than rich. But I was saying that five years ago so
0: um, (laughs) maybe i'm too maybe i'm too focused on being right yeah well i mean another another aspect to that uh which is very important and and kind of brings the two themes together is that i'm sure the haven of private money that is to say crypto money will be uh, you know front and center along with you know the whipping boy du jour of oil and gas um, as heavy polluters of the environment, you know, mining is obviously very, very intensive and just from, and we could maybe wrap it up just, um, at an individual level, when we see something like, uh, you know, depending on what narrative you believe with regards to the results of, um, of the elections this week in, in Virginia and New Jersey, as you said, still up in the air, but it does seem like people, if you believe that there was a, a kind of cultural backlash with, you know, parents, I saw one uh, figure was something like 25% of parents of children in K through 12 cited uh, critical race theory in schools as a very high, um, uh, you know, very prominent reason that they voted the way that they did, and 75% or 74% said that they thought it was moderately so. Practically everybody had it at, you know, front center on their agenda for that particular cohort of, of voters. But let's just assume that um, that the results were were uh, in part due to people pushing back. And remember, this was a big swing. I think he, Biden carried that state by something like 16 points or whatever in the, last, in the last election. So this is a huge swing. But people had the idea that in a functioning democracy... To the extent that it is they were able to wait it out go to the ballot box cast their vote make their voices heard and then you know see an injustice corrected um if what what can individuals do specifically if there's something like um you know the the, the central banks co-opted to to heal the planet or redistribute funds or 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 whatever it happens to be, it's not like you can go, individuals can go and just vote out um, you know, a Jerome Powell and replace him with somebody more responsible and more in line with their philosophical preferences. Um is it mostly a case of just playing defense and and uh, dealing the hands that you're dealt, as as our friend Doug might say, or what can we do at an yeah. individual level?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it I think the first and most important point is that what you do on an individual level is a lot more important than who you vote for because the the vagaries of elections whether they're you know fraudulent or legitimate or whatever you want to say will swing back and forth and if there's any consolation in the results that from these elections is that maybe just maybe there was a uh, you know the pendulum has begun to swing back from a collectivist view of public health and safety to more, you know, individual rights are important. The state doesn't own your children. You're entitled to know what they're teaching in schools. You pay for them. These people are not unaccountable. And, you know, children don't belong to the state. It, it, I think at that level, it was a really visceral reaction because many, many people were quite willing to go along with the idea Mm -hmm. that, we're just trying to stop the spread for two weeks or no, I don't want to kill my grandparents. And I want to, you know, I'm happy to wear a mask if it makes other people feel better for a while. But if that, you know, if that, if that swung all the way into a complete collectivization of public health where vaccine mandates, uh, you know, vaccines were mandatory in public schools and and masks are mandatory in public schools, that might've been a bridge too far. So, You know, that's where government should work at the local level. And that's probably the interesting aspect of the elections is that you can, if you're going to influence your community through politics, you're more likely to do it from the town board, the county board, or from the state house, not from anybody in Washington, because all of those people are basically, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound on the, on the, on big government. But our view has always been that regardless of what happens, and I say, R, I I think you and I agree on this and it's certainly been Bill's view and. He's been heavily influential in my view that the best way to preserve your freedom is not to pick the right candidate or the right public policy, but to be able to take care of yourself financially so that you can take care of yourself and your family and your loved ones or, or whoever's in your community. And I think that that's your only real proactive uh, action rather than def- a defensive action. Um, so you're right. Financially, it's defensive. It means how do I make sure these people can't take my money or steal my savings? That's why we're in defensive assets. And th- there's no nothing that's foolproof in that regard. So as you know, gold got confiscated in 1933 by executive order. So you know there's no risk-free way of protecting what you've earned. Uh, so. You, you have to do other practical things for me and for Tom and for Bill. And I think for you, part of that is choosing what community you want to be a part of, not just intellectually and financially, but physically, <laughs> you know, where do you right. want to live? What, what jurisdictions are le- less likely to confiscate your wealth or restrict your ability to move your money where you want to move it. And, uh, that's, that was interesting in New Jersey, by the way, because the taxes are high there and, uh, you know, people, probably enjoy the benefits of living close to new york city but there's all these other negatives. so i think we just have to push back against this narrative that there's an immediate global crisis that requires a coordinated collective action at the expense of your freedom and money. that's what's on the table. i don't know how to push back against that, you know, through social media or through politics. So I think you just do it at the individual level and say, "This is nonsense." Speak out against it and uh, be vo- be vocal about it, which I think people are better about now once they realized, you know, their opponents aren't giving ground. But you know, in terms of public policy, I, I have no idea. If if the Fed becomes politicized and decides to make another big mistake, then uh, no one's going to protect you from it but yourself, and that that's what you need to be focused on.
0: All right. Wise words for individuals listening, and you can hear probably a bunch of angry individuals at a traffic jam just out front of my window here. So yeah. maybe inflation yeah. has ticked from fifty percent to fifty five percent up here today <laughs> in Argentina. But, uh, Dan, mate, great to speak to you. We'll uh, we'll be catching up again uh, as soon as possible. Thanks, mate. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at research.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.